Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again. I've got The Brilliance in Failure, a leader's learning journey, and I've got Chris Brickman on the line today. Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey, so, uh, you know, we've been having fun this morning, running around going crazy, and uh, Chris has mentioned he is going crazy too because you're doing uh, an amazingly difficult uh, part of a public company which basically reporting at the end of the year. You think doing taxes is hard. Try doing what Chris does. Well, you know, every quarter we we have to report our earnings, and first we have to run through our board meetings, and and we talk to them about our strategies and how we're doing. Then we have to uh, write a script up so we can release that uh, those earnings publicly, and of course file our financials. And then of course we have investors who want to ask lots of questions about those results and and grill us a little bit. So these are the two weeks of every quarter that are that are a little bit stressful for for someone who runs a public company. Yeah, I know. I mean, running a public company be so much better without investors. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have a minor missing, but other than that, you're exactly right. <laughs> hey, let's talk a little bit about your book. I mean, why did you think it was important to have this book out there for other business people to read and, and get uh, knowledge from? I gave a speech uh, uh, in late 2013 to about 500 MBAs. And uh, when I gave the speech, they'd asked me to talk about my career. At that time, I was president of, of uh, Kimberly Clark's International Division. And I, they had asked me to talk about my career and go through every job I had had uh, since they were looking forward at their careers, thinking about all the jobs they were going to have. And I said, God, that's going to be a boring speech. So I thought I would tell some stories in there that in each job. And I thought the mo- best way to have ones that would resonate would be to tell stories about things I messed up or didn't do as well as I'd like to and, and uh, what I learned from it and how I grew as a person, as a leader, as a result, and to make them more real and, and, and a little more accessible. And after I gave that speech, I got great feedback from the M- MBAs about how they felt that made the information easier rather than preaching to them about all the stuff I knew that they didn't know. Uh, it was more about, hey, here's all the stuff that I, <laughs> I didn't do very well uh, and that I learned from. And by the way, you're going to make some mistakes too, and don't worry about it. That's part of life. And so when I had a break in between my uh, role at Kimberly Clark and my role here at Sally, um, I had two months off and uh, my wife told me that I wasn't allowed to just play golf. And so I, she said, you got to go find something to do other than that. Uh, so I, I decided I was going to write a book and that I would leverage that experience and those stories as a way to, to get going. And I hired an editor and, and the rest is history. <laughs> Did you find that writing the book, it was, it was a cathartic thing where it enabled you to de-stress about a lot of stuff and let go from some of the, the older failures, or was it a different experience altogether? I think you hit it on the head there, actually. I think it was a cathartic experience because it gave you a chance to look back at, at, at a long career and, and, and to think about all those things that at one point in time, you kind of I call them cringe-worthy moments where you, you look back and go, gee, I really wish I hadn't done that or I hadn't acted that way or said those things. Uh, and to realize, you know what, despite all of those mistakes, you've still done great. You're, you're in a great place in terms of where you want to be in life and in your career. Uh, and those things helped you grow and learn. And so rather than, than uh, uh, feeling embarrassed about those moments, embrace them and, and use them as growth opportunities. You've got senior people that are senior and they've been doing it a long time and they've kind of got that bedrock belief and they've kind of done their mistakes and got over it and stuff. But then you have the juniors and the people that are just getting in and maybe people coming out of university. They're so terrified of making mistakes that that in itself hobbles them and makes them a bad manager or a bad leader. 
Yeah, I, I see it all the time, and I see it, and it's not. I see it at all levels, by the way. I don't just see it in the junior, or the mid ranks. I even see it at the senior level. There's this desperate desire to be perfect, to get everything right, to do the perfect presentation, the perfect, say the right thing at the right thing, time to the right people. Um, and and I get it. I understand. There's this pressure because you want to move up, you want to get bigger jobs, you want promotions. Um, and the reality is, you will never be perfect. Uh, it's absolutely impossible, uh, and you are going to make mistakes mistakes and learning how to grow from those things and, and, you know, learning from others who have done it. And one of the things I give people recommendations on when they ask me, well, where should I go work? And, and sometimes they're trying to design, of course, the perfect career path, which is equally a fallacy, <laughs> uh, is, is I say, listen, the most important thing is to go work with people who are going to give you great feedback and be coaches for you. Uh, because if you go work with people who you trust and who will give you the feedback you need when you need to hear it and will allow you to make those mistakes and view them as growth opportunities just like you will, uh, then you're going to grow faster and develop faster and be a better leader faster. Uh, and all of that will add up to a better career. But uh, in many cases, I see it at all levels. This desire to be perfect is overwhelming. Uh, and, in, and in many cases, it's actually quite hobbling in terms of uh, their ability to accept feedback, their ability to deal with the ups and downs of life and of business. And, um, you know, it, it can be a, it can actually be a big anchor for some people in their careers. Why, why do you think that is? Do you think it, it's more uh, happening here in, in North America or is it more of a global phenomenon because of the way business is structured as this, you know, do or die thing and we're in competition with everybody else and very sports metaphor driven or, or uh, aggression metaphor driven instead of um, how can we grow as an organization, as a team and move forward and we're conscious that mistakes are going to be made, but that's part of the process. And as long as you don't use that as a crutch, you're with us the whole way. You know, I, I think it's very much about just high-performing people, and it's it's. I don't. I think it's uh, culture agnostic. Uh, I really think high-performing people who want to and aspire to being bigger, better in their careers, to grow, to be promoted, to make more money, whatever it is they aspire to, uh, high-performing people put a lot of pressure on themselves. Uh, and in the process of putting pressure on themselves to be perfect, you know, it, it's very tempting to, you know, rather than learn from an experience, be defensive about it and, and even explain why it happened or maybe blame it on somebody else or, you know, whatever the reason is that it's not your fault. <laughs> if you're spending your time thinking about why it's not your fault rather than spending your time learning from the and, and growing from the opportunity, then you're probably investing in the wrong area. And oh, by the way, you're not going to learn the trust of your peers. Right, because your peers don't really want you to accuse them of making the mistake and then them having to suffer through it. That isn't very inspiring for them. You know, your peers want to have an honest dialogue about what happened and how can the team be better and where are we going and you know, when you turn it and you take any situation where a failure occurred and you turn it and you can turn it one way, which is, well, who's responsible for this failure and make it a very accusatory approach that creates one outcome. Then think about the other outcome that says, okay, well, that didn't work. How are we going to be better as a team? How are we going to create some, a different outcome? How are we going to win the next time around? And suddenly that opens up all kinds of p uh, possibilities as opposed to driving people towards pointing fingers. And, you know, that's the real skill that people have to get into is, is, to, is to really change the conversation with their, with their peers, with their teams, and turn it much more to something that can add value through great problem solving as opposed to something where it's just, well, he said, she said.
Yeah, and then 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 you're in a much worse situation because then it becomes a trust issue and. Getting people to trust, it's so hard to build it to that point and so easy for it to be torn down. Well, and once you undermine trust with your team and your peers, right, I, I, uh, there's something I describe the speed of trust, right? If, if you've earned trust with your peers, if they know you're going to shoot straight with them, that you'll always look for the positives, that you'll always try and support them, that you'll give them honest feedback when they need it. If you've earned that kind of trust, suddenly decisions can make happen so much faster than if you lack that trust. And I've seen it, you know, you, you've probably been in, in a meeting before, or I'm sure all of the listeners have, you know, where the trust isn't there and everybody knows there's a lingering issue under the table that nobody wants to talk about. And, you know, how much gets done in that meeting? How, how many great decisions are made? How many big ideas come up versus the meeting where, every, you, you know, you're working with people who you trust implicitly, you believe in them, you know they'll shoot straight with you, and you're really just problem-solving an opportunity about the future as opposed to finding out who was responsible for the mistake of the past. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Chapter 12 because it's, it's a hottie on greed and gravitas. For you, why do you think that's a salient point these days more than in the past? Well, you know, I debated including that in the book. Um, uh, but uh, in the end, you know, I've been through so many compensation discussions, uh, whether it be from myself or whether it be negotiating with people. And I've seen it handled so well and so poorly. Uh, and um you know, some people come off as being all about themselves and all and being very mercenary. Uh, and there's an impact of that on your organization, your team in terms of trust and how much they believe in your commitment. Uh, and I obviously I've seen people uh, the other way, which they come off as magnanimous and quite really focused on, hey, you know, comp's important, but at the end of the day, let's move on and focus on what really matters, which is building a business together and all of us sharing in the benefits of that. And, uh, you know, I, I saw it enough. I saw enough mistakes made on both ends of this uh, that I said, you know what, it's worth talking about uh, because everybody's going to go through it at some point in time. They're going to be in, a, in a, dis- a decision where they're going to a new company and they're negotiating their salary, or it could be at their existing company and they, they want to get paid more and they want to have this dialogue. And it could be at an executive level. And, you know, knowing that you've got to think about the long term as well as the short term, and the short term is I achieve the goal in the negotiation, and the long term is I want these people to believe that I'm committed to them. And I'm committed to this company. I'm committed to making a difference long term. You've got to balance those. And, and that's what I'm trying to encourage people to do in the chapter is, hey, f- strike a balance and you'll never get it perfect, but don't ignore one way or the other. And I have seen people who, who are at both extremes. And um, so I try to give some advice on it. Uh, yeah, I, I think also that don't take stuff so damn personally. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's like, oh, they they didn't accept my wage request, so I hate them, or they hate me, or I'm not as good as I should be, and it's all this internal stuff. I mean, quite frankly, I think part of a a team should be a general psychologist that's there that you meet every week and vent, you know, say, dude, I'm feeling this way, and he can guide you. Do you think a position like that is kind of part of the leader's job for the C-suite and, and senior managers is to, to have, actually have somebody that is almost like a, uh, a psychologist? 
Well, it's close. I, 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 am not quite there, but I am there, right? Which is what I, I, I describe it as, as a leader, when you reach your own, I call it a moment of Zen, where you're level set, right? You're comfortable with who you are. You believe in, in what you're doing. Uh, you're not, you're not going to take everything personally and you're not going to get all emotional about every little thing and go off the handle. You can suddenly be in the moment with the people that are in front of you. You can be listening to them. You can be observing them as leaders and how they impact the people around them. And you can give them much more valuable feedback about, hey, here's the great things you do. And here's the things that, you know, you could be better at, and you could have more impact at. And, you know, when you reach that point as a leader, you are suddenly 10 times more valuable to the team and to the people that work for you. Uh, because you can be a real coach and a real mentor to them. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of leaders who are not at that point personally, and they're still worried about how others perceive them. They're still thinking about, am I saying the right thing at the right moment? Am I being perfect? And the net result is they aren't in the moment for the people that are coming and talking to them. And I think it's also uh, based on um, not believing in yourself where, you know, you, you talk to people and when they open up, they say, geez, you know, I'm, one day I'm going to get caught. I, I'm a fraud. I'm not. They don't really believe in themselves. They really think that they don't deserve to have that position, which everybody else in the organization thinks, oh, my God, this guy's brilliant. He's fantastic. But he's so driven and he's so self-critical that he really thinks that he shouldn't be in that position. And one day somebody's going to come and say, get out. You're a fake and uh, we don't want you here anymore. You know, I've seen it all the time. I think it's a very good point. And the reality is those people make crummy people leaders because they're so worried about what other people think about them that they they really struggle. They micromanage. Uh, they want everything to be perfect. They over-criticize others. Um, they take things very personally, and they have these emotional triggers that go off if somebody says something that, you know, makes them feel somewhat, you know, at risk or at like a fraud, as you mentioned. And the net result is those people tend to be flawed leaders. But Why? Why are people, is it, is it because they were brought up the certain way? Because there's a lot of people out there that are like that. I mean, okay, there's some amazing leaders. And uh, usually I run into people that are considered the best of their trade, like an amazing photographer or amazing baker. And you sit down and chat with them over a glass of red wine, and they're just the most affable, wonderful, calm person that is totally willing to give you their trade secrets because it means nothing to them. They're beyond all that. And you say, wow, this is somebody that really gets it. And then you run into somebody else, and they're just grating the way that they're constantly uh, trying to back up their greatness by not sharing anything. It's a very hard one to comment on and give you one reason for it. Uh, I, I don't think there is one reason. I think, the rea I think the reality is if you're still living in a place of self-doubt and if you're looking for validation from externally, uh, then you're going you're gonna to struggle as a leader. Because you're, you're going to want other people to be constantly recognizing you and telling you how great you are. And that doesn't make a great leader, right? The great leader doesn't need that. And the great person in any profession doesn't need that. Uh, and the reality is you're exactly right. When you reach that point in your life where you're really satisfied with who you're at, you want to learn, you want to grow, but you're not, you're not trying to make a show for other people. Uh, that's when you can really be better in terms of what you can offer others. Uh, and I see a lot of, I tell you what, I've seen people at the highest ranks of every profession who are, who are insecure, who, who doubt themselves, who lack the confidence. Uh, and as a result, they're crappy leaders. I've seen it over and over again. It kind of like it's the givers and the takers in the, in the business world. You meet the givers and they're just such 
a breath of fresh air that you can feel your body just relax when you're around them and you want to help them. You want to work with them or you, 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 you don't want to negotiate with them. You just want to work with them. And what's it going to take for me to work with this person because he's so awesome compared to somebody that's just about the money or very aggressive and you put up this big shield and it's like, ugh, you're going to have to pay me a heck of a lot more because I know you're going to be a disaster to work with. No, you're, and that's the have to workforce. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I've worked with a few of those leaders in my career. And, and, and it's just amazing how much I feel more inspired by them. I feel more confident when I work for them. And by the way, I feel like our problem solving sessions lead to much bigger ideas as a result. Uh, and I'd follow them anywhere. How do you think people should read the book? I mean, it's very anecdotal. I mean, it's a story or a series of stories. Is it a book that people should read cover to cover and, and get as much value as if they just jump from section to section? Because, you know, the way it's, it's broken up in, in the contents, it's very specific. You know, realize your agenda and the 80-20 rule. I mean, could you just jump into one, certain sections? I think the reality is it's done, done as a series of anecdotes. You said stories in which I usually relate a, a personal failure or mistake that I made and what I looked, uh, learned from it and examples I've seen in industry and then tries to impart some, some thoughts about, okay, what could you take away from that experience? Inevitably, every person is going to have different strengths and weaknesses. And so different parts of the book are going to be more relevant to them. Uh, I feel like I've, I, I've had more failures and more mess ups across a wider range of behaviors uh, than most. But the reality is, is that different people are going to are going to be likely or prone uh, to different um, stylistic issues, opportunities, and development opportunities. So the net result is, you know, it's probably a five or six hour read. Uh, it's not a long read. My guess is you read some and a few of those things will really resonate. And a few of them will be like, well, okay, I don't have that. I don't, I don't do that. I'm not prone to that behavior. And that's great. Uh, and I think, you know, that's the reality of everybody is, is that there's going to be certain behaviors we're prone to based upon the way we were raised and our personal experiences that will be great uh, beneficiaries to us in the sense that we'll benefit from them. And there'll be other ones that are detrimental to our career. And what's really is when you you grow is when you recognize the behaviors that are detrimental to your career and you get after them. Well, it's also, you know, it's a type of book you should read with an open mind and being, you know what, uh, let's be honest with myself. I'm going to read this book and see if I can hold it up as a mirror and, and see my flaws and maybe see some flaws in other people so at least I know how to manage them better. You know, you can't go to a person and say, hey, you got this problem, fix it. You kind of got to go to them and say, Okay, I'm willing to work with you a little bit different now because I know that you've got this, you know, got this problem. You don't tell them that they have the problem. You just you just work with them differently, and maybe that'll bring them out of their corner that they painted themselves into. And I think that's the big opportunity, both for yourself and for the people you work with, right? So for yourself, it is sometimes you can go to people and say, hey, listen, I, I tend to be someone who talks too much. So I really, you know, if you see me talking too much, hey, cut me off and say, I got an idea here and I want to get it in and you're making it hard. And I'll listen to that. Immediately, that changes the game from them thinking you talk too much to them saying, okay, at least the guy gets it and he wants to, <laughs> he wants to learn and he wants to grow and this will give me a chance to insert my ideas. The reverse is true, right? Where you could say to somebody, hey, you are a person that has these great ideas and I love listening to you. Every once in a while, I find it hard to get in and uh, to be able to insert a couple ideas in there. Do you mind if I stop you in here a few times and try and synthesize and also try and add to it? Because I just love your ideas, but it just goes on and I have trouble in, in, in you know, kind of contributing to that conversation. 
And you can work it both ways. Oh, absolutely. Or assimilating the idea where the idea ends and then a brand new idea comes. I mean, that's my flaw is I have so many ideas. I get so excited and I have a good vocabulary. So it's entertaining to listen to the ideas so it can mesmerize you. And a lot of times I, I'll go into a situation and say, look, at, um, I'm going to get excited. You have to jump in and just say, shut up, Bob. I'm not going to take it personally. That's just my cue to say, ah, okay. Sorry, let's backtrack and see where I've left you in the dust because I don't want to give an idea and then roll over with another idea because they may lose that first idea. Maybe that original idea is the one that they need. There you just hit it on the head, which is if you're self-aware enough to actually be able to say that and then be open about it and, and as a result of that, give them an invitation to cut you off and say, hey, let me on a couple of those ideas, if I'm excited, let me really dig in on it. Uh, you've already created the opening in the conversation, but it all started with self-awareness, right? And the opinion of the person that's dealing with you or has to deal with you, or I don't use the word deal with you because that's what you do. You have to deal with different people as just a reality of business and life. Nine times out of 10, they're just too shy. I'm especially here in Canada because everybody is seems to be over polite. In the States, people, they'll step up. Uh, yeah. So it's slightly different. But if you're a, a leader in a global organization, then you're dealing with different cultures and, and face and all sorts of complex stuff. And sometimes you just don't have that opportunity to be able to step up and say, this is the way I am and this is the way you should treat me. It's just inappropriate. How do you tackle that type of situation where you're going into a cultural exchange and the mistakes that can happen from there? You know, first of all, it's a very good point, and it is very true. Uh, you know, but I'll give you an example. So I remember dealing with a leader who ran our China business for me. And when I would first go over and speak to him, he was extremely thoughtful uh, before he would say anything or respond to, to the points I was making to him. And at first, I, I was either thinking he either didn't get it or that he was blowing me off and he was waiting for me to leave and then he would do whatever he wanted to do. Um, but, you know, what I realized over time was actually he was just very thoughtful and he wanted to put his, his points together. And he would oftentimes come to back to me a few days later with an email that would say, hey, you made these four points. These three I really agree with and here's how we're going to go about them. This fourth I disagree with and let me tell you why. And that was once I got to the point where I was recognizing that that's what he was going to do, I felt that was fantastic. I didn't need him to respond in the moment. If he needed a couple of days to really think about them, because that's his style, um, I, I was great with that because it, it, I knew at least he was going to challenge me where he needed to challenge me, and he was going to grab onto the ideas that he was inspired by and, and run with them. And so, you know, part of it is you just got to be open to the fact that, that people are going to have a different style. I mean, if you try and take you and I and put us in Korea in a business meeting in Korea, right, it's going to be a really different environment there. And you have to recognize that. And, you know, one of the things I used to do is there was a company that did these uh, kind of cultural indexes where they would benchmark different cultures uh, against each other on their styles. And I would actually draw like what was a typical American style versus a typical Korean style up on the board on these benchmarks on these various variables. You know, how much do you talk? How much do you defer to hierarchy? Various things like that. And I would draw it on the board and say, hey, looks like we're a little different here. Has everybody got that? And, and then say to them, so, you know, I get it. I may talk too much. I may be too loud, a little boisterous, you know, feel free to challenge me at the same time. Also, you know, if you feel more comfortable coming back to me in an email or talking to me later one-on-one, -on -one, I'm fine with that. 
and you create the opening then to break through whatever ever that cultural barrier is. So, you know, it, it happens individually, one-on-one. There's obviously lots of different styles of people. I think to generalize about Canadians or Americans is false as well, right? There's lots of different people in America and Canada. Sure. Uh, but in addition, it cuts across cultures as well. Let's talk about your best failure for the one that, that you learned the most from. There's plenty of them, but I think the one I learned the most from, and I describe it in the book, was was when I took over what I would call my biggest line, first really big line role at Kimberly Clark, and I took over uh, president of Kimberly Clark Professional, which is a three and a half billion dollar business selling B two B, and um, you know I spent the the business was in a bit of decline when I got there, and it was a struggle in the first nine months or so as we were beginning to try and turn the business, and I just launched initiative after initiative after initiative and really pushed them through. And, and I would argue I probably intellectually bullied the team, but felt like, hey, this is a sense of emergency and we've got to act with alacrity. So I'm going to move and move fast and I'm not going to wait. And at the end of a year, after we started to really turn the business and feeling like, wow, I played a great role there. I got a lot of lousy feedback from the team about them feeling like, hey, you just bullied us and made it happen, but but you, you didn't build a team. You just kind of intellectually bullied us into, into executing. And, and so this is really your success, not our success. And and that one really hit home because it, 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 you know, I had envisioned myself as this really participative leader who listened really well and who, who brought the team along with me. And what I was realizing is I wasn't actually doing that. Yeah, but then you got to look at it. That was your job. You know, you brought on, you know, you brought on board to move the company out of a crisis mode. Now, reflecting on that, the next quarter, you've got to make a change. And that's kind of my next question is how do you recover from a mistake and the strategy behind that? So can you talk a little bit to that point. Well, the, the way I do it, and, and I think you're exactly right, there is a balance you got to strike, which is you have to deliver results as well, uh, which is I just took the feedback and put it out in front of them. It was anonymous feedback, but I dropped it on the table and said, hey, guys, you know, I'm past the whatever anger I felt about this, and now I want to talk about how we get better. Right, which is because that's all that matters to me is I want to continue for us to perform and I want to be giving more room for you guys to input to shape the strategy going forward. Um, and, you know, so help me do that. How are we going to work together differently as a team? How are we going to break up some of these initiatives? Can I be, you know, turning over some of the leadership on some of these things to you so that it's not just about me? And, you know, to me, there's obviously a chapter in the book called, you know, Transparency Changes Everything. I just did it completely transparently. I threw all the feedback on the table. I said, you know, that's not who I want to be. Uh, and I, that's not who I want us to be as a team. So let's go fix this together. Uh, and they believed that, right? And I was sincere about it and they believed it and we did it. And, uh, you know, I think that that's always my approach. If I, if I believe we've got a problem, the first thing I do is state the problem and then say, let's solve it together. Uh, because the reality is, is that uh, I know if we solve it together, we're going to all own the agenda going forward. How do you do it if you're a, a junior manager and, and you basically have to go to your boss and say, I get that uh, I made a mistake last week or, or I screwed up. You don't even know about it. I just discovered that I really messed up. What's the best approach? I mean, to just go and, and own it? Is there is there a better way? I mean, coming from their side, from their perspective, what do they want from their employees that realize that they've made a mistake? 
Yeah, I think your word about owning it is is the most important word there, right? I think if you sit down with most bosses, obviously there's good bosses and bad bosses, but <laughs> but uh, I think with most bosses, if you sit down and say, you know, I think I could have been so much more impactful in this meeting. I feel like either I didn't listen enough, or I didn't t- I talked too much, or I I pushed too hard for one direction and didn't consider alternatives. But whatever it is, I feel like I could have been so much more impactful with this project, this meeting, whatever it is. Um, and I'd like you to coach me. Talk to me about what could I have done differently there? What do you think? I could, how could I have been better? How could I have had more impact there uh, and delivered better results for the company? Because I think that says two things. One, you care about learning and growing. Two, I care about the company because I wouldn't, you know, eat crow and, and own the problem if I, and, and say what matters to me is the success of the company if I didn't believe that. Um, and I think it, it also, you know, says to them, hey, I believe in you. I, I want to hear from you because you're a trusted advisor to me who's knowledgeable and capable, and I want your feedback. So, you know, I think you know, avoiding it's the worst thing you can do because the boss is thinking about it. If you really believe you screwed something up, uh, chances are you did. You may not have, but he'll tell you that too, or she'll tell you that too. The better thing to do is go in there and say, I think I could have been so much better in this moment. I could have made so much more impact. And I really want your advice on, you know, what could I have done differently and how could I have driven a better outcome for both myself, for you and for the company? You know, and uh, really what you're talking about there is a chapter seven, humility and the art of asking for help. Absolutely. I mean, I I have made that mistake so many times throughout my career. And, you know, all of us have these great people that surround us uh, everywhere, right? Whether it be bosses or mentors or people who have great ideas and insights. And, you know, if you fail to leverage all those great people around you, you are making such a mistake. And I made it at every step in my career over and over again, where, you know, I would be given an assignment. I think, oh, I got to do this myself. I got to show them how smart I am. And I could have walked that around and asked, said, well, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And if I did that with five people, I would have had such better ideas, such better and more crafted, you know, recommendations um, than I came forward with just because I failed to leverage the people around me. Yeah. And I'm a really big believer in, in going to the people that are uh, confronting the customer or, or um, the other business that you're doing business with and talking with them, the, 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 uh, the service providers, the sales team, and sitting down with them and say, what is the biggest gripe? Why are people dissatisfied with this company? What is the problem that's happening right here? I need to know that so I can go upstream and try and figure out a way to streamline this or, or fix it or deal with these, uh, these situations. There's so, it's so rare that you get a sweet, sweet level of CEO that goes down right down to the core, the truck driver, and sits down with them over coffee and say, well, you know, what are the problems that you are having fulfilling our ability as a company to do right by our customer? I couldn't agree more. I mean, the reality is, is that it's so easy to get disconnected as a senior executive uh, from the reality of the business. And yet that that's where you find it first, right? Because that's where the rubber meets the road. And, you know, so for one of the practices that I do is that every single week I have two hour long discussions with a district manager from different parts of my business and around the globe. And this is the level just above store manager. So this is the a person who manages 12 stores uh, on average uh, and they're down in the guts of it. 
right? They're standing in stores almost every day of the week. They're dealing with associates and store managers. They're watching customers walk in. And I'll do a call every single week with two of those people to hear what's it like on the front lines? What's it like in the stores? What's, what are we doing well? What are we not doing well? Because it connects you with reality. And when I was at KC, I implemented where I would start to call frontline sales managers, marketers in countries. So the sales manager for Vietnam or the sales manager for China or the marketing manager for Australia and do the same hour-long conversation about what's it like, what is, what's going well, what ideas do you have that are being implemented or not being implemented? Are you inspired? Do you want to be part of our team? Do you see a career path for yourself? And just listen for an hour. Don't preach to them about this, the, the company vision. Just listen to them for an hour. And doing a couple of those calls every week, which ends up connecting to 100 people over the course of the year, makes such a difference in terms of that. And I think so many people lose sight of it, which is, in the end of the day, you know, corporate we deal a lot with investors and shareholders and board of directors and a lot of people who drive around in fancy cars and, and show up at big meetings and deal with PowerPoint decks. Um, but in the end of the day, that's not who your customer is. That's not who you're selling to. And if you're not asking that customer uh, and, and talking to people who are really close to that customer about what's going on, you get detached really fast. Um, chapter nine, never burn bridges. Now, is there a point where you should burn a bridge or you should just never burn bridges? I mean, obviously, it's always tempting, right? There's always that jerk boss that you'd love to get back at or somebody you'd like to shake, you know, thumb your nose at and say, look at me, I did better. I left you guys and I'm doing much better since then. But, uh, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to do is get people to take a long-term view and say, you get nothing for that right? Thumbing your nose or, or going, calling them back and gloating. You get nothing for it other than whatever personal satisfaction you get out of that. And the question I have is, wouldn't you rather know that every time somebody who at a previous company you worked for talks about you, they always say, well, that person's a class act. You know, we lost them. They left. They went to another company or they did something different, but they added so much value while they were here. Uh, they made sure they cleaned everything up before they left in terms of making sure they, they left the business in great shape or whatever their job was in great shape. Uh, and they left on only a positive uh, uh, note. And oh, by the way, uh, when I called them up later to ask them some questions or advice, they picked up the phone, they answered, they called me back immediately and they, they helped me get to that problem or understand where I could find that. Uh, that, to me, why wouldn't you rather create that second conversation as opposed to that person's kind of a jerk, they're an arrogant jerk who left and thumbed their nose at us and then gloated about how great they were doing. I just know I'd always rather have the second conversation, which is that that person's a class act. Well, and not only that, as the person that's a jerk, you tend to want to forget them so that person is forgotten, whereas the class act, they call back and say, hey, you know, I got this new position. With this new position, I might actually be able to help you guys out. Why don't we sit down and talk about it and, and you know, go that next step and, and see if you can actually take an old situation that's maybe five or ten years old and go back and actually benefit from not burning that bridge. And I've had it happen to me so many times in my career, I'm, a, I'm completely bought into it, right? And when you're 25 or 26 and you're an MBA and you're coming in, you take your first job and then you leave, you can go on, you figure, ah, 20 years from now, I'll never see this person again. Who cares? And I guess what I'm trying to tell them is you never know. I have run into so many people 
from the past in my career and had both things happen where sometimes I didn't maybe act as the way I would have wanted to today and, and I left a bad impression on them or the reverse of that where, you know, I really did a great job leaving on the right terms and making sure that I did everything I could to do it right. And as a result of that, they call me back and say, hey, if you, you know, there's an opportunity here. I wonder if this is the right thing for you. And it's come back around and, the, and, and run full circle so many times that I just look at it like I, I would never do it. There's no value to you other than the short-term emotional gratification you get uh, from gloating or whatever it is. There's no value to your long-term career, and you will be amazed at how small the world is if you actually are successful and reach the senior levels of corporate hierarchy. Oh, yeah, and and look at it this way. All the people you're going to run into that know you from your past are going to be in a more powerful position because they survived and they're in the same game that you're in. So no matter what you do, you're not going to meet somebody that's down on their luck. Ten years from now, you're going to meet somebody that's another CEO or CFO and say, holy crap, John, I I had no idea. That's amazing. Boom. They've got that trust already happening. You can move business forward. You can discuss on hindsight some problems that may be coming up. I mean, it opens up all these opportunities. That, That is my take on it. And it takes a lot of maturity to not want to to gloat or not want to, you know, uh, to wander away and say, look how great I am uh, when you're in your 20s and 30s. I know I didn't do it all the time. Um, but if you can, and if you can leave people and really commit to leaving people with the most positive possible impression of yourself, um, it will pay out in the long run. Uh, but it does take a level of emotional maturity to be good at it. Yeah. And, and you know, I even feel that you can go back and you can build a bridge back. If you're able to go back to an organization and say, hey, I was younger back then. I was a bit of a jerk. I'm really sorry what I did. I feel terrible about it. How can I fix this? How can we reconnect in a positive way? I think that is definitely something that you have as an option. You know, I've done it before where, where I've actually had people call me who I was worried um, that, that maybe they would have that negative perception. And I started off the conversation with exactly that dialogue in terms of saying, you know, I, I wasn't really proud of the way I left that situation. And, you know, I wouldn't do it that way today. It changes the game immediately. And it's, it's, you know, just being self-aware and being willing to say that and being confident enough in yourself that you say that immediately changes the game and allows them to kind of go, oh, well, maybe this is a different person I'm talking to today. You want to align yourself with like-minded people. So if you're an open, honest person, the people that are open and honest are going to connect and want to do business with you. The people that don't get that and are, are still a jerk and still have a corrupt approach to business and stuff like that, they won't get it and they'll just push you off, which is something that you really want to have happen anyways. You got it. That's exactly how I feel about it. So what is the worst part of the job? Listen, the worst part of the job is is that when you're going to be a senior leader, um, there will be some people who inspire you and energize you and you can't wait to, 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 to shoot them up and mentor them. That's the best part of the job is mentoring people who then go on to bigger and bigger things. Uh, and, and then there'll be some people who, who do okay and then there'll be some people who you just know are not helping the team and the company move forward and you've got to deal with it. And if you ignore your responsibilities in those moments, you are letting down the rest of your team. 
So it comes with the territory that when you run a big team, uh, you are going to have to, unfortunately, let some people go and fire them. Uh, we don't train people how to do it, but the reality is you're going to have to do it. Um, and it's, it's not because you want to be a jerk. It's because you owe it to the rest of the team to put great people together to allow everybody to be successful and not just and, and not. In other words, you can't sacrifice the benefit of the team uh, in order to, to not deal with an individual. And you will be faced with that many, many times throughout your career, the more senior you get. Uh, and it ain't fun. It never will be. Um, but you better make the decision and you better make it reasonably fast or else your team's going to suffer. We've all been fired and we've been fired by a person that knows how to do it. And then you've got people that have just botched it. And, you know, it can mess a person up for six or eight or nine months. It's a very, very tough decision. And every time I've done it, it's killed me for weeks afterward. And that's me taking it way too personally. But I really, really hate having to let people go. And I think any human, any person who is a human is going to feel the exact same way. And, you know, the reality is, is that uh, I've had to do it for all those reasons, whether it be an economic reason, because you got to cut costs, or whether it be because someone just is not a good dynamic with the rest of the team, or maybe the interest is the skill sets have changed for that job, and you need somebody different who can bring in a different set of skill sets. All those reasons happen. Um, and, you know, the reality is none of them is going to be fun for the person on the other side of the table, and yet you still have to make the decision. When the business is suffering and you're in jeopardy and you need to lay people off to make it survive, you have to make that call when it's necessary. And by the way, when one person is bringing down the whole team because they got a bad attitude or in a bad position right now, uh, or they just don't have the right skills for that job, you got to be willing to make that one too. And, you know, in each case, what we tend to do is we tend to kind of bounce around it rather than get right to the issue. And, you know, part of what I'm arguing to people is guys, just be transparent and put it on the table and say, you know, I've made this decision. I've made it for these reasons. We're going to do it. And now let's start talking about how are we going to help you be successful going forward? Because debating the past is done. Let's not waste any more time on it. Let's move forward. I wanted to ask you, you know, it's interesting that you've you've put out a book that's so heartfelt and honest about your, your mistakes and the growth and uh, as, uh, as a human being and as a business person throughout your career. What could our listeners do today to help them on a similar path? Well, I mean, obviously, the, the most important path is whatever path they're passionate about, right? But, you know, I'd, I'd be thinking about a couple of things, right? So, so first is, you know, to honestly look at themselves, of course, and to say, you know, what am I good at and what am I not good at? And to have a development plan, right? Be focused on two or three things they could be really much better at. And the best way to find out those things, go ask five friends. You know, if you ask five friends in an honest way and say, I really want to grow as a leader and I'd love for you to tell me what are my, my strengths and, and what are the couple of things I could be better at, you can narrow the list down to two things in, in, five, in five discussions over coffee with some friends. Uh, so the first would be to have a development plan. Know what you're working on and know why you're working on it. Um, the second would be try and position yourself uh, not only in an industry you love, but with people you love, right? With people you love working with. Because if you love the people you're working with and you believe in them and you trust them, then when they give you feedback and when they, when they call you out on something, you're going to immediately be more open to it. And by the way, uh, chances are they'll give you more room 
because they'll know you and they'll know your strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, they'll, they'll look at this as, hey, nobody's perfect. And let me tell you what you could have done better there. And it'll be delivered in a way that you'll get more value out of it as well, because it, it won't be a personal attack. It'll be a chance for you to grow professionally. And, you know, that's, that's the best advice I can give people is have a development plan. Use your friends and resources to get one. Go work with people you trust and believe in who will give you feedback on that development plan. Uh, and then the last would be to never stop learning because uh, the minute you stop learning and asking questions uh, is the minute your career's dead. You just don't know it yet. And, um, you know, the minute you think you know everything is, is when you've stalled. And that, that's, that's the, the biggest caution I give people is because a lot of people, I think, believe that, you know, suddenly they're going to reach a certain level in whatever company they're in or whatever the profession they're in. And at that point in time, they can just kind of, they're done learning and now they're executing. And I would argue the world changes too fast for that. You got to keep learning. Do you think schools, business schools in particular, are failing their students by not preparing them for failure and this type of philosophy of overcoming it? You know, I, I don't think they're very good at it. Uh, that's for sure. I think, you know, they're very focused on delivering a, a content rich curriculum, which is all about whether it be finance or marketing or, or, you know, variety of topics that are relevant to business people. Um, and I don't think at all they focus on, or at least I haven't seen many, uh, that focus on the soft stuff, which is all those leadership skills and developmental skills that, that, that are all about how do you lead people and how do you make a difference for them personally and how do you recognize your own faults and strengths as a leader. Um, so I haven't, I haven't had a great experience with business schools churning out people who are good at this. Um, like any other thing, you'll have great leaders that come out of business schools and poor ones. Uh, I don't think the school affects that much. I think that's their life experience and how they're raised and where they're at personally in their life and their career, uh, and a lot less about the business school. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know whether we should expect them to do it, like, you know, because obviously they, they charge a lot of money for what they do, and students expect a return on that, and they might view the soft stuff is maybe not as high return, but uh, I don't think they're doing a particularly good job of it. Right there is probably the problem is they don't understand that the soft stuff is has any ROI, and really that is all the ROI. I agree. You know, you go, you come out of a school, and you think, oh yeah, I'm like I'm the king of the world. I got my MBA, and you go into a company, and they say, great, empty the wastebasket because you know nothing about the culture of this company. You've got to learn that, and then all your skill sets can come into play. But you know, you can't come in here trying to be king of the hill. It's just not going to work. Even in a place where they really value the insights of younger executives who have started, the reality is if you come in and act like you know you're the smartest guy in the room, and you're going to tell everybody what to do day one, um, you know people are are not going to believe in you or trust you or invest in you. In fact, they may undermine you. Um, and you know if you come in with a different attitude that says, hey, you know I got some great ideas, but I really want to listen because I really want to learn fast and you find a way to position a few ads and a few inserts uh, that, that make a, a result better, um, but then build off somebody else's idea, uh, you're, you're going to find so much more receptivity. And, you know, I did a simple exercise once, um, and it was with a, an improv comedy group actually came in and, and worked with our executive team. And um, in improv comedy, you can never say, but you can never say, uh, oh, great idea, but here's the problem with the idea. You have to say, and. So great idea. And here's some other things we could think about. And when you actually go through the rigor of every time somebody says something, don't say but, but say and, uh, and try and build off what they said rather than cut it off and say something different. Uh, it's amazing how that changes the dynamic immediately in a meeting. 
And, uh, you know, to me, th- these are simple things you could practice in business school. You could practice in team meetings uh, that aren't that hard, right? I mean, if you did that an hour a week every week for, for the two years you're in business school, I'll bet you'd be a different person coming out. And that's what I don't understand is, is why aren't we teaching young leaders some of these things about, hey, listen, there's a way to get your ideas across that's equally as important as the value of your idea. We've been chatting with Chris Brickman today, The Brilliance in Failure, A Leader's Learning Journey, a highly recommended book if you're actually in school like we've been talking about. This is the soft stuff that will really make a big difference in your career. And if you're struggling in a business and want to know why, I would definitely recommend reading this book as well. For the C-suite level, read it, have a couple chuckles and reflect on your life and then be a little bit more humble when you're talking with the people below you. Chris, thanks for being on the show. Bob, thank you so much for giving me the time and and I just appreciate you you taking the time to read it and, and chat with me today. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.